My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jean Swanson and Phoenix. Gentrification is the process in which neighborhoods get remade, rebuilt, reshaped, in ways that destroy existing community and push out low-income residents, replacing them with wealthier and often whiter residents, and new housing, businesses, and services that cater to them. It is often framed as improvement because the influx of investment capital makes things shiny and new. But beneath that, and obscured by the expensive restaurants, the dog-grooming parlors, the high-rise condos, and the fancy coffee, is inevitably destroyed community and displaced people. Gentrification's slogan might be, out with the poor, in with the upper middle class and wealthy. The downtown east side in Vancouver is one of Canada's poorest urban neighborhoods, but the gentrifying pressures on it have, for years, been enormous. And for years, the community has been resisting. In a smaller and less politically vibrant city, there might be one group dealing with the issue and one dominant mode of resistance, but Vancouver being what it is, there are a range. Jean Swanson has been involved in taking action against poverty in British Columbia for decades, and Phoenix was herself homeless on the streets of the downtown east side. And both are involved in one such organization, the Carnegie Community Action Project, or CCAP. They talk with me about their neighborhood, about gentrification, about some, though by no means all, of the broader local context of resistance to it, and about the particular contribution that CCAP has been making. I spoke with Swanson and Phoenix by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My name is Phoenix. I have been homeless and mentally ill, and I started going to CCAP probably about five years ago. The woman who was the organizer at the time, Wendy Peterson, she was very good at reaching out to people, and she reached out to me in getting involved in the different protest actions and research. She helped me use some of my skills that I had gotten when I went to I went to university earlier before I was homeless again. So she helped me use my skills. And I'm Jean Swanson, and I've been working here at CAP since about 2005, I think. We work on housing, income, and gentrification, trying to get more and better housing, higher income. Welfare in BC is only six ten a month. So it's not enough to pay rent and eat on. You just can't do it. And during the Olympics, we worked really hard to try and pressure the government to build more housing. For three years in a row, we had the Poverty Olympics, which was pretty fun. We worked with the city on the local area planning process, which was a disaster, although we did get a couple of little things. And we have different actions and basically try to get more and better housing, higher incomes, and slow down gentrification. Give me a sense of the neighborhood. What's the community like? Who lives there? That kind of thing. Well, the majority of people in the neighborhood are on low incomes. When we set up a committee with the city of Vancouver 
to look at a local area plan for the downtown east side, we wanted it to be 70% low income people because that was a representation of the downtown east side being predominantly low income people. And the city did agree to that and sort of slid a bit as the process went on, but it was an important landmark to have the city acknowledge that a low income community should make decisions for the low income community of the downtown east side. A lot of the people who live here live in single room occupancy hotels. There's about 5,000 of them. They are on the second and higher floors of old hotels and people live in one room about 10 by 10 with a bathroom down the hall and no kitchen. And often the maintenance is really crummy and there's pests, bed bugs, cockroaches, mice, rats. And sometimes the management is horrific. So there's about 5,000 people in that situation, and there's the latest count, well, the second to latest count, 731 homeless people in the neighborhood. It's probably higher now. But condos are coming in. There's thousands of new condos in the neighborhood, and in the last two years while we've been doing the local area plan, there have been approvals for over 1,000 condos. So the area is gentrifying fast, and a lot of the stores that low-income people used to be able to shop in have been closed and replaced by uh, doggy clothes stores and places where you can get a $65 haircut and oyster bars and stuff like that. <laughs> and high-end cafes and restaurants and people aren't as welcome in those places as they used to be before they got the boutiques or the, the high-end restaurants coming in. So the flavor of the neighborhood is changing. It's under a lot of pressure. And one native gentleman said that it made him cry just how much the downtown east side has changed in the past five years because one of the wonderful things about it is, is you can go out on the street and just keep running into people that you know and people give you a hug and ask you how you're doing. And when I was homeless, people would ask me, have you eaten? And they would offer to buy me a meal. And there's that kind of caring people care for each other down here, which People from the outside don't often see that, but there's a real sense of family. And when somebody passes on, we remember them at the end of our meetings that we hold. We have a moment of silence for those activists and for those people close to us that have passed on in the downtown east side. Tell me more about the mechanisms through which gentrification is happening in the downtown east side and about the ways that it's having an impact on people's lives? Well, the mechanisms are a rezoning. The downtown east side has eight sub-areas. One of them is Chinatown. A couple of years ago, the city rezoned Chinatown to allow uh, 17-story condo towers. The excuse was, oh, if we allow that, then we can get more community benefits like social housing, but for 561 condos that have been approved in Chinatown, there's only 11 welfare rate social housing units proposed. So that's one way is by rezoning. There's another development on East Hastings Street that's got, I think, 282 condos proposed and only 24 units of welfare rate social housing. We've been fighting a running battle with the city over the definition of social housing, if you can believe it. In some ways, it's a definition that's going to displace the low-income community. The city seems to want to be able to say that it's building social housing, but the only way it can afford to build it 
is if they rent it out to people who have high incomes, like 80000 a year. So we fought tooth and nail in the last local area planning process to have social housing defined as housing that's accessible to people on welfare and basic pensions. And all we got out of that was a third of the new social housing has to be at welfare and basic pensions. So there's all these condos coming in with no social housing. Another thing about the neighborhood, it used to be known as Skid Road, and it was given a name the downtown east side just because it was a community of its own, but it's prime real estate now. It wasn't before, but now the developers want to come in, and it's close to downtown Vancouver, and some people are saying, why should poor people live in some of the richest real estate in Vancouver? So there's more pressures being put on the neighborhood, and I just talked to one person who was a developer, and he said, I don't think we'll get rid of social housing in the neighborhood as much as we'd like to. So there's pressure on the existing social housing that's in the neighborhood as well. Another thing that we've been seeing is a lot of displacement, even the the local area plan. The result of it will be that people will be displaced out of the neighborhood. And I know people that still come to the neighborhood nearly every day, but they live out in Burnaby. They live out in the outlining areas. And they come here because this is where their community is. Another way that gentrification is happening is property owners are buying up hotels and evicting the low-income residents and renovating them slightly and then renting them out to students and young workers. So take the Thornton Park Hotel, for example, which is a single-room occupancy hotel. It was bought in December. There's only about five old residents left, they've all been evicted with some excuse, like we need your suite for the caretaker suite, even though there's a bunch of empty rooms, or you brought bugs into the building, or you didn't pay your rent to the previous landlord, even though he didn't collect it, things like that. So we're helping tenants fight those evictions. And this week, the new homeless count came out and homelessness has gone up. It's higher than it's ever been in Vancouver. And one of the reasons for this is that these SRO hotels are the last resort before homelessness. And these rental victors, we call them, they're evicting low-income tenants, and then they have no place to go, and some of them become homeless. So that's another way that gentrification is happening. And with the local area plan, there's actually a section in there where the city will give incentives to landlords to upgrade SRO buildings, which would be okay if there was appropriate rent control or safety for the existing tenants to be able to stay there, but there isn't. And another thing that's been done is they've put high-end restaurants in the bottom of buildings that they want to renovate to charge higher rent. I don't know if you heard about the protest in front of the Pigeon restaurant. It made some national news. And it was local people saying, we don't want a high-end restaurant in our neighborhood. That went on for almost six months, the protests in front of the Pigeon Restaurant. What the owner is doing is raising up the rents in the uh, rooms above the restaurant. So they're using high-end restaurants as a way of raising property values and making the property look more desirable. Vision, which is the ruling civic party, has gotten tens of thousands of dollars from developers. Zoning is the most important power that a city has in some way because by changing zoning you can basically write a check to the property owner 
And so developers give lots of money to the civic parties and they take it and they rezone and they seem to be giving the developers exactly what they want. And the mayor apparently had a luncheon with developers where the cost per plate was $25,000. Tell me more about CCAP. Is it, is it a membership organization or, or how does it work? CCAP is a project of the board of the Carnegie Center Community Association. And the Carnegie Center Community Association operates in the building of the Carnegie Center, which is funded by the city. But people become members for a dollar a year, so there's about 5,000 members. And they elect a board every year, and CCAP is a project of that board. For 2008, 2009, and 2010, CCAP did a participatory study and mapping and visioning process with residents of the neighborhood, about 1,200 low-income residents. We have three reports on it, which are up on our website, capvancouver.wordpress. And we came up with what the assets are in the neighborhood. And then we had a three-day planning process with 44 low-income community leaders and actually came up with a blueprint for what low-income people want in the neighborhood. So that 1,200 people in that three-year consultation process is what grounded us in what we're working for, how more and better housing, higher welfare, and stopping gentrification. That's what people wanted. And it's put out in more detail on page 8 and 9 of that report, which calls for other things like ending police brutality, creating better image for the neighborhood by honoring low-income people and respecting low-income people, having services that are based on the nothing about us without us approach, things like that. And attracting more children to the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing that we've done is held town halls at the Carnegie Center and invited everybody who wants to come from the neighborhood to come and talk about gentrification or talk about how they feel about the local area plan. We try to get a sense from them what we should do and where our next step should be because they're the ones that spoke out really strongly and said, we need 100% social housing, not 60% and 40%. We need it to be 100% social housing. So we get our guidance from the people in the neighborhood itself. So it's like Phoenix said, we have the weekly meetings. We have been having weekly meetings of the low-income caucus of the local area plan, planning committee for a long time. And we usually have a town hall meeting about once a month to try and make, sh make sure that we're grounded in what people in the local community are really thinking. Tell me about how organized opposition to gentrification started. I mean, whether that's the stuff that you've been involved in or if it maybe started before you were involved, what you know about some of those origins. Oh, boy. <laughs> you've been at it longer than I have, Jean. This neighborhood has had a history of resistance for years and years and years. There's such a strong social justice movement down here. People have been fighting for a long time. It's, it has a huge labor history and it used to be part of the Japanese community and there's Chinatown is a big part of it as well. So the building that we're sitting in right now was occupied in 1935 by guys from the work camp just before they went on the Ontawa trip. But anyway, gentrification. People have been fighting gentrification since before the Woodward squad, but that was probably a milestone in it. Woodward 
was a big department store. And for years, the community wanted it to be converted into social housing, 100% social housing. And it was actually occupied for a summer and into the fall. The city council got elected on the promise of ending homelessness and finding housing for those people who did the occupation. But anyway, as it turned out, Woodward's ended up with 536 luxury condos. And it does have 125 units of social housing, which is way better than we're getting now, but it's still very gentrified and it completely gentrified the areas. So what you're saying that when the Woodward's department buildings closed, people squatted that land and there was a whole camp there and people said they wanted it for social housing and they only agreed to move because they were guaranteed that they would get social housing. So that was a big community activity and people still remember that fight for Woodward. It still means a lot. And then during the Olympics and leading up to the Olympics, we had tent cities and we kept trying to make the point that if the money spent on the Olympics had been spent on housing and ending poverty, it could be done. We had our poverty Olympics for three years in a row. The government was feeling the pressure and they set up a special information office for foreign visitors to brag about how much housing they were allegedly creating. So we kind of created counter information for that. And we had our own Poverty Olympics website. And then there was this development proposal for the old Pantages Theater, which was a historic theater that some people wanted renovated, but it got too dilapidated for that. So there's a condo proposal for that that we've been fighting for years, mostly by there's a big blue wall that's been built around it, and mostly we've been fighting it by having paint-ins, pancakes and paint-ins to stop the Pantages because the developer wants to put in 29 condo units there. It's right across the street from InSight, Canada's only safe injection site. So we've been trying to stop that for years, and we're on the verge of losing that because it's about to get a development permit. Tell me more about the roles that the two of you as individuals and also CAP as an organization have been playing in some of this work against gentrification. Like we didn't do the pigeon pickets, but we do research. Every year we do an annual hotel report where we, we count the rents. We go to all the hotels and find out what the rents are. And then we count up how many are not affordable to people on welfare any longer. So last year we lost 213 to rents over 425. The year before that we lost 400 and some. And this year already we've lost probably at least 60 that we know of, but we haven't even gone around to count yet. So we do that research and then we try and go around and tell people about it and go to city council and present it to the councillors and try and get them to do something about it. For the last three years, CAP has been working to help the low-income community participate in the local area planning process, which has been a chore and a half. And I think if I've learned anything, it would be not to do that again. What happened was we had a huge organizing effort about three and a half years ago to try and stop the rezoning of Chinatown for the towers. And we had 80 people lined up to speak at City Hall. And the morning of the afternoon that we were supposed to speak, we got a call from one of the counselors who said that the speakers were not going to happen. They weren't going to hear the speakers, our 80 speakers that we lined up. 
And instead, we were going to get a local area plan. And so then we spent a year negotiating the terms of reference for the local area plan. And as Phoenix said, we negotiated that over half had to be low-income people. We negotiated the terms of reference that low-income and vulnerable people had to be a priority of the plan. We negotiated a $10 an hour stipend for people who were on the local area planning committee. And we negotiated a partnership rather than a consultative role for the committee. But the partnership didn't work. The committee kind of fell apart. And the city basically went on and did its own plan, regardless of what the low-income people said. We did get a couple things. We got a rezoning for one of the eight sub-areas. And we got an Aboriginal Healing and Wellness Center. They're doing a feasibility study on it right now. And we got one-third of the social housing to be accessible to people on welfare, but it's not enough to save the low-income community. So the other thing is CCAP uses a lot of people that are in the community that are homeless. It's very good at social organizing and getting people mobilized. And that's sort of where I come at it is, is like it's more of a collective than having people in charge and doing all the work. But the work against gentrification, like the Downtown Eastside Women's Center is working against gentrification. The Aboriginal Front Door is working against gentrification. Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users is working against gentrification. They all are. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that these other groups are doing. Are, are, have they all been focused on the local area plan, or have, have there been other facets to the struggle in the last few years? Uh, most of them haven't been focused on the local area plan. <laughs> they gave up on it. Especially for some of the women or people that were Aboriginal. It was just a really, really messy meeting, that meeting. So some people came out of it and didn't come back. Some people have come in and out of the process. And some people have decided that they can get a better voice in City Hall just by talking directly or themselves. We used to be a, a little bit more coordinated with those other organizations, but not so much anymore, I think. Another example is the Women's Center has an annual housing march, and we stop in front of the gentrifying restaurants and hand out leaflets to telling people not to go in there and explaining what gentrification means and things like that. And gee, what else have we done? We've had lots of paint-ins and marches. and There was also one time there was one building that was sitting and nobody was in it. And we actually found people that were willing to go in and help work on the building and do renovations to put it up to code so people could actually move in there. But I think it basically shamed the owner into doing the repairs himself. We occupied one of the condos on Hastings Street for a while. We walked to an MLA's office from one end of Vancouver to the other end of Vancouver. From the leader of the Liberals to the leader of the NDP, 14 point some kilometers. <laughs> and what do you see as the key actions that CCAP is going to be taking around the gentrification issue in the next six months or a year? Well, there's the annual hotel report that comes out every year. That's a big piece of research that goes out to everyone and helps to make the case that people are being displaced. One of the things that we've wanted to find and get in touch with is the people that are actually displaced from the neighborhood. 
and where they end up. And sometimes people end up coming back after six months because they discover that this is where their community is. We're going to be working on the renovations, I think, for sure. One idea we've had is that the city should refuse to give permits to renovators unless there's a guarantee that rents stay the same. And that could be particularly effective if the permit was for the store on the ground floor or the restaurant or whatever it is, because those are the ones that make the big money. So we're thinking about how to push that forward. We're thinking about a human rights case because people are being evicted who have low income and uh, trying to get the city to require better maintenance in the hotel, maybe to have the city deny business licenses unless some of the problem hotels get nonprofit management, things like that. We'll probably be working on uh, trying to make sure that the Aboriginal Healing and Wellness Center goes as the people that we've been working with want it to go, and keeping an eye on the local area plan implementation, that kind of thing. There's lots to do now that we don't have the local area plan. It's going to be good. I think we're going to be able to get into some more real type of work. Oh, and we'll also be working for higher welfare rates and more social housing. <laughs> we're a strong part of the Rates Coalition that's working for higher welfare rates. On April 1st, we had an action where we had a tour of two cities where we went from the downtown east side into a rich part of Vancouver, the Vancouver Club, and we had different skips. We had the marriage of the government and the richest 1%. <laughs> We're just trying to put pressure on the government to raise welfare rates, which haven't been raised in seven years. So we're, we're part of that. And we're also always trying to get the government to build more social housing. Right now, there's only $30 million a year that's allocated to social housing in all of BC for new social housing or renovation. So there's a lot of pressure needed there. And we helped form the uh, Social Housing Alliance, which is now meeting every month and trying to work out a campaign where we can really ramp up the pressure for more social housing to be built and also for controls against rent increases. We also wanted to make this area a social justice zone. Yeah. That was something that people spoke pretty strongly about and that included making it accessible to all, like even if you don't have identification, even if you're a migrant worker without proper paperwork, that it would be the services would be open to everyone. And it also had things like no condos before low-income people's homes and reversed the, the loss of homes and shops for low-income residents and ensured jobs and protect residents' safety and, and discrimination. So those were something that 3,000 people signed a petition that we gave to City Hall and to the local area planners saying that we wanted a social justice zone. You have been listening to my interview with Jean Swanson and Phoenix of the Carnegie Community Action Project. To learn more about their work, go to ccapvancouver.wordpress.com. That's all one word, ccapvancouver.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.